HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Greg Bresnitz, one half the host of Snacky Tunes. We have had the honor of being nominated by Taste Awards for Best Radio Show and Best Podcast. Please head to bit.do backslash stvote in order to vote for Snacky Tunes and other food favorites. Once again, that's bit.do backslash stvote. And a big congratulations to Heritage Radio Network for being nominated into the Hall of Fame. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Today's program was brought to you by Roth, Wisconsin, makers of the world's best cheese and pioneers in the U.S. artisan cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Hey, everyone. This is David Tatashore, lead engineer and studio manager of the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm reaching out to ask for your support during our end-of-year fund drive. A contribution in any amount supports our weekly programming and our mission to make the world a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious place. Plus, you'll receive exclusive member benefits like monthly playlists, discounted event tickets, party invitations, and more. So if you like good food and you love good food radio, throw a little dough our way. Make your gift at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Happy holidays from all of us here at Heritage Radio Network. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Darren Resnitz, sitting in the legendary. I feel like we can say legendary. <laughs> we can you. say legendary. Providence uh, with Michael Simarosti, chef, owner, founder, seafood legend, adopted godson of uh, Neptune. Yes. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for having us uh, here. So, um, you know. Providence was probably the first restaurant when I was in New York that people spoke about, like in hushed tones in LA, mm -hmm. even from, you know, years ago. And, you know, what it's been based on is seafood and uh, dedication to the sea and all animals and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, but you built a career out of seafood. Yeah. Um, what, what put you in that direction? When did that start? Uh, it started, I guess, like way, way back when I we used to work at Le Cirque when I was a kid. The original Le Cirque on 65th Street. And Define kid. kid. Like 20, 21, oh, okay. 22. Not, so not 12. Not, not 12. Not 12. But um, I wish I had started there when I was 12. Um, but, um, you know, I, I worked there for a while, started out on the grill like most cooks do, and then they moved me to the fish station, and I stayed there for maybe a year. And when I was there, you know, as once the chef trusted you, he yeah. would allow you to uh, sort of like do your own thing. To a certain extent, there sure. was there were menu items that were part of the static menu, but then there were also spe daily specials that we did, and you know every day we'd get some new type of fish, uh, and you know and the chef would allow myself and a couple of the other cooks to like come up with our own specials. So I started really like delving into things there, and then um, and then I moved out here. I initially I was working at Spago, mm. and then um, small little place. Keep your eye on that. The one. old, yeah. Keep your eye on Spago. Yeah. Wolfgang, you might just make it one day. Yeah, yeah. he just. Mm, I hope. Yeah. I hope. Yeah, he's a hard worker. Um, <laughs> but um, and then uh, and then I moved to the Water Grill after that, and that was where I really started like intensely focusing on on fish and seafood, and where I really you know sort of like learn the ropes because honestly like I think working with seafood a while it's very different than you know working in a regular sure, restaurant sure. where you know you're dealing with more poultry and meat and stuff like that in a sense like it's like it's like working in any other type of restaurant like aspirational type restaurant right. and I think a lot of what it comes down to aside from what you do within the four walls of the restaurant is what comes through the back door and what you're able to get and, and you know, and the relationships you're able to build with, whether it's with fishermen or whether it's with, um, you know, really great purveyors and, you know, building a set of standards so that people, everybody that you deal with knows exactly what is good enough for you and what's not. Um, and then, you know, from there, once we get the finest stuff that we can get, then, yeah. then we just try not to screw it up or mess with it too much. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean... That's probably the most amazing and toughest thing about getting some of the best ingredients in the world is like to get out of its way sometimes. Mm -hmm. And 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 you know, I mean, we've you know we've ruined our fair share of fish mm. back here in the restaurant, you know. And then you know, you know, and obviously you know we do we do our our level best to make sure that it never finds its way to the dining room. But you sure, know, we have you know. It's 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 a tricky medium to work with, and and it requires a lot of time and a lot of uh, effort and attention, and I think you know that's one of the things that we really focus on here is like trying to just teach our cooks, um, you know, what is the right way to cook things and what is the wrong way to cook things, the right way to store things and yeah. handle them and butcher them, and you know, so it's a whole, it is a different discipline in a way. Yeah. So let's go back. Where'd you grow up? New Jersey. New Jersey. Yeah. Born and raised. Born and raised. Mm -hmm. Boss, and boss fan. Uh, no, not really. Um, I, 
I, you know, I don't know where I grew up, and we were we were all into the um, the Grateful Dead and the Allman Brothers and re- lots. I mean, I was a huge reggae fan. Really, I grew up. What city in Jersey? Uh, a town called Pennington, which okay. is like right. Uh, it's ten minutes from Princeton. Okay, so it's you know it's. Did you go to Princeton Record Exchange? Oh, of course. I lived at Princeton Record Exchange. I, I mean, dropped thousands of dollars there, like when I had no money. Yeah. I mean, like my birthday presents as a kid were always like a shopping trip to the Princeton Record Exchange. I mean, and that, I, that, that place is legend. Yeah, and I still have the record collection to prove it, too. Yeah. Um, mostly all, all, almost all reggae, because when I was a kid, like, that was, you know, for me, that was all I pretty much listened to. So I have a giant collection of LPs, you know, some really uh, awesome stuff. Some mm-hmm. stuff that actually some things that I bought the Princeton Record Exchange last year, I gave to Ziggy Marley. Ziggy Marley came in with his mother Rita. Really? And yeah, and and um, you know I had these old LPs, a lot of them that I bought at the record exchange, and then some that I bought at this little tiny record shop that used to be on St. Mark's Place in mm-hmm. Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And um, like these these these. Um, you know, mixes from local New York DJs that had taken some of Ziggy's stuff and oh, then yeah. re- remixed it yeah, and then yeah, pressed yeah. it on the vinyl. And I gave it, I brought, I gave him like four um, EPs and I gave him the Island Records box set of, um, of Bob Marley's nine I- Al- Island albums. That's amazing. So after he died, they remastered it all. They, they um, pressed 10,000 copies of these nine records and put it in this beautiful box set with this, you know, with this great, like, um, you know, pictorial sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, and there were, there were only 10,000 made and I've bought two of them now. Cause I gave the first one that I had to Ziggy still like yeah. factory sealed. And then I bought another one to replace it because he came in and I just told him how much, how, you know, reggae really helped shape my, my upbringing and everything. And, and, um, and I brought those LPs and I said, look, I really want you to have these like, and some of it he'd never heard some of those EPs That's that I so bought awesome. in New York, he'd never heard. And, and he was like, no, I can't, I can't take them. And I was like, look, man, you have to take you them. You have to. Like, it, mean, it would mean so much to me to know that you have these records in your home. That's so awesome. Yeah, it was very cool. That's, I mean, it's, it's amazing uh, to find so many people who are now in this world of, of food and have that passion, who started with a passion for music, mm-hmm. which I think is a, an easier thing to get into as a kid, as an art farm, to be like, I love music, it's so fantastic, it's really awesome, mm-hmm. and then be like slowly progressed into the kitchen and yeah. the culinary arts. Well, I mean, being a, you know, it's a lot it's it's a lot easier to be a music fan than it is to be a chef, you know. And oh my god. Doesn't it, require much. No, it, you know, but, but you know, a good year and something, you know, and something that you really have latched onto. Yeah. But I mean, there are a lot of chefs that are musicians, you know. Yeah. Lots and lots. Oh my god, so many. So mm-hmm. many who are just it's so it's so funny how many now we see like the chefs who want to be up on stage and the guys up on stage who want to be like in the back of house. Yeah. Um, so when did you start? So your grandparents were from New England. Yep. And was it? I know that uh, Connie and Tens is inspired by their sort of like mm-hmm. cooking and approach to food and things like that. So for you, was growing up and eating like that New England like style seafood was that just normal for you? Yeah. I mean, that was my. You know, we we spent our summers in Narragansett, Rhode Island, oh. with my grandparents, and we, um, you know, we'd visit there all the time on holidays. And um, you know, my grandfather taught me how to fish and gave me my, like the love that I have for the sea. I really trace it back to him. And um, you know, so growing up, there were it was a lot easier to find the kind of food that we serve at Connie Ted's when I was a kid, and it's a lot tougher now. And when you do find it, honestly, like nowadays when I go back there and I eat at some of the places that I ate at when I was a kid, I realize. 
that I don't I don't know if things have slipped or things have changed mm. or you know if the world the it's, the world is just a different place now and so like I still like relish eating that food in other places but a lot of times it's more for nostalgia's sake than anything you know not about the preparation and certainly not about the quality of the ingredients but I don't know when I was a kid I think back then 30 years ago 35 years ago like we didn't have all these system in, systems in place that we have now and you know it was more you really had to have relationships with fishermen and that kind of stuff to get okay, yeah. you know your your pisser clams or your you know your steamers or your <laughs> you know all of that you know all that kind of stuff like because there wasn't like you know a value added product that was sitting in somebody's freezer that you could just go and get yeah, you know what I mean, and it, and it's so it, I don't know, it just seemed very different. There was more of a direct connection. <clears throat> there was more of a direct connection. And there was less, less restaurants too. That's true, and I also feel like the food was just more. It was more. Uh, it was much closer to its roots back then, and now nowadays it's just different. You know, you, you go to places now that are on the beach, and you know, in Rhode Island or Massachusetts or whatever, and you know, and they'll be serving like salmon that was farm raised in Norway. You're like, well, how does this have any fucking relevance to where you are, right, right, or right. what you're doing? It makes no sense. Like, it's like no, but we're near the ocean, and this yeah. all comes from the same spot. You're like, yeah, what? yeah, but meanwhile, there's you know, there's fishermen that are starving or selling their boats because they can't make a living at it anymore. So it's like. It, it it drives me crazy. It's infuriating. When did you see... So, you know, you, you've you been tied to the sea since a kid. You work your way up into all these restaurants. You're mm-hmm. a water girl. When did you see things... When did you notice a change in the way that fish, is, fish was being, I guess, farmed, raised, caught, things like that? Mm-hmm. What, was, what was the shift when things started going, like... I don't want to say sideways, but maybe I not. think it was I think it was, like, the late 90s. And I think it was... You know, there was a period of time, like, before sustainability was a buzzword that it is now mm-hmm. and there was a, you know there was a period of time where everybody like oh farm raised salmon wow that's got to be a great thing and you know there wasn't a lot there wasn't a lot of information out there that might lead you to believe anything but that you know that it yeah. is a good thing and then you know i think we all everybody just got smarter information became easier to come by and you know and i think people just in general began to realize that maybe this isn't the the next best thing you know since um, sliced bread and so I think that's probably, you know, late 90s, I think that's probably when the turnaround happened. And then, you know, honestly, for me, I just feel like, as I said before, so much of what we do here is about relationships. And now, like, having the relationships that I do have Mm -hmm. to local fishermen and and being able to get local, like, seafood harvested here in Southern California that is, like, coming directly off a fisherman's boat and then coming directly to our door. That's something special, and that's important, and it's, you know, it's, like... Traceable fish is should be the future of wild fish. You know, it may not be. We may never get there because there's, it, it is very difficult to do it on a on a global scale or even a national scale. It's yeah. a very difficult thing to do. But I feel like that is the direction that um, that the seafood industry needs to trend towards because that will you know that'll ensure that you know all of these issues we hear about in the news on a, you know it seems like on a monthly basis about. You know, seafood fraud and everything else will oh, will yeah. fall away. You know. Yeah. So when you start, so when you start thinking about opening up your own spot, mm-hmm. which is now ten years ago, almost twelve. Twelve years ago, mm-hmm. when you start thinking about it, did you feel that sustainability had to be a key part of opening the restaurant? Yes, but I didn't have like. You know what? Where where we are now at the restaurant and yes, how we and, buy, yeah. and it was is like light years from where we were back then. And yes. I also had a you know I I was a kid and I was young and I was 
you know, I came from a French background and worked in France and worked at, you know, one of the, at the time anyway, we were one of the best of um, French restaurants in the country. And, you know, we were always getting, you know, wild turbo and wild du mer and all these, you know, and we also served our fair share of fish from the Atlantic, but um, on the East Coast. But, you know, that, that was what I leaned towards when I was younger. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. kind, those kinds of fish. Yeah. And and now I'm much more about trying to find, you know, great fish that's from right here in Southern California. Or at least, you know, from, let's say, like, Morro Bay South. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to take a quick musical break. Let's do that. What okay. are we playing? What are we listening to? Um, I don't know. Whatever the engineer picks. All right. We used to call it out, and then I realized that I could only remember the same three or four bands mm-hmm. every time I got to this moment. So, uh, Dave, whatever you want to play, I'm excited. But it was recorded live on Snacky Tunes here on heritageradionetwork.org. Wait 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm with Chef Michael Simarasti. How'd I do? You know, not bad. Not bad? Yeah, I've heard worse. Okay. Yeah. It's okay. Uh, we're sitting in uh, Providence, which was recently named, again, the number one restaurant in all of L.A., which is pretty awesome. Right? It's, it's nice. It's nice. It's not It's not a bad day when that No, it's not. In. It's not at all. Um, you know, but the restaurant's evolved over the years, and what also evolved has been this idea of sustainability and the fish that you use. Um, you know, especially as you've gotten more buying power and more notability, more people wanting to bring certain fish your way, um, and as you've gotten more aware of just focusing on the sh- fish of the region um, with, like, the Dr. Dish program, mm-hmm. um, can you talk about some of the fishes that you used to use, some of the fishes you use now, and your approach to working with local fishermen and, like, being part of that community and a champion of it? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I mean, honestly, I feel like that, for me, is is maybe the most important change that the restaurant's gone through in the last, you know, since we opened. And when did that change start? It How started a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, it was started in 20, 2015. But I was talking about it with the founder of Dr. Dish back in Montauk, Long Island, since for those 2014. Who don't know what Dr. Dish yeah. is. Duck Dish, Dr. Dish is a subscription-based um, uh, fishery. Sure. That restaurants can join, and what it, what you're agreeing to to become a member is that you'll pay monthly a monthly subscription, and you can deem like how much fish you want. Like you'd say, I want 50 pounds a week, 100 pounds a week, 75 pounds, whatever it is, and then um, we will bring to you your subscription every week, and it'll be locally caught fish. We'll tell you who caught it, where they caught it, how they caught it, um, what's and its it, name, what's its, and it'll be delivered to you within 24 hours of catch. Much shorter usually. Like this week, like yesterday, actually, we just got fish from um, a captain named Eric Hodge, who works up in Santa Barbara. He the, he landed the fish at five p.m. Uh, and we had it yesterday at eight thirty in the morning. Get out of here! Yeah, and it's insane. It's like the fish is it's the finest quality fish that I've ever worked with, honestly. And but and, you're beholden to. Yeah, you take what you you take what they catch now, which is different because so when you're starting yes. out. And you're opening this temple to seafood, yeah. and you're coming from the French background that you have, and like that, you're like, I have an idea of the fish that I want. Mm-hmm. I, I know that we have the money to buy it. Right. This is what we're going to serve. This is how we're going to build. Right. The menu. The menu these things. and yeah. the reputation. Mm-hmm. So when you start to think about sustaini- sustainability change, what? Give me an example of a, a fish that was on there when you started mm-hmm. that you no longer work with, and a fish that you would have never considered. Yeah. Well, but now it's on there. Perfect. So we, when we first opened, we always had turbo on the menu. Wild turbo from France. Delicious. Yeah. And we would, I mean, it was. It was beautiful fish. And we, um, we would serve it for two. So you get a big piece. It would mm. come out in the dining room. They would fillet in the dining room. The whole thing. And now uh, we don't do that anymore. So perfect example of a fish that we replace that with is this beautiful local fish called Vermilion Rock Cod. Sure. Which is a, it's a fairly humble fish, but... It is uh, like blue collar, like working background, like almost, yeah, exactly, yeah. And it's the it's, but it is one of the most delicious fish that I've ever worked with. And the fact that we can get it less than twenty four hours out of the water and have it in our hands is remarkable. And I have the the connection back to the fishermen. And I know that you know that because we're buying it and because we're supplying you know ten restaurants in L A with this with Eric's fish, I know that Eric and his wife and his two kids, whom I've met all of them are 
you know, enjoying hopefully a slightly better life than they were before. It's like futures, like buying on future, right? Away, like, in, in a way. way. Yeah, I mean, he's actually now at a point where, like, we're creating, because Dr. Dish is now under the umbrella of Cape Seafood, the, the fish market that we own. Yep. So we're, we're running Dr. Dish with the help of Sarah Rathbone, who is the West Coast founder of, uh, of Dr. Dish. And we, so we hired it at Cape. So now, if you're buying from Dr. Dish, you're also, in a way, buying from Cape Seafood. And, um, and the th- I, you know what? I honestly, like, you know, the accolades of the restaurants accumulated and all that stuff and Michelin stars. And I can honestly say that, like, I am as proud of the fact that, like, now we have 10 restaurants that are members of Dr. Dish that are, instead of buying, you know, farm raised Branzino or um, farm raised salmon or some fish that was, you know, maybe flown in from the East Coast or Europe, that they're now supporting the lives of local Santa Barbara fishermen. Which sort of goes back to what you were used to when you were growing up. Yeah. With, like, the local connection and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what every sort of of success in the change in the ecosystem and supply chain is that someone with the buying power the notoriety now 10 restaurants is not a McDonald's level but 10 restaurants is, is it's, a, Im- it's important it's important it's- but it's your name and buying power that's allowing a shift in the way that people approach mm-hmm. Where they get their products and a change in the way that well, it's you know you think about it, it's maybe a, you know ton or whatever yeah. of seafood a week. It's not even, or a month. It's not even that much, but it's like it's something. It's a start. It's like trace fully traceable fish. People are going to know exactly where it's coming from, how it was caught, all that stuff, and that is the model that we should need that we all need to like sort of work to get back to, you know. And that's the model that existed long before you know these giant industrialized systems to deliver us our food, right. you know. And that's. You know, bucking that trend, I think, is something that I think you'll see more and more of. And, and, and I'm really happy and really, you know, proud to be a part of it. Do you, but do you, my question, I guess, is that because of what you've been able to do here, the, the, the small empire that you've been able to grow, that allows you the freedom to do that. Like, you have the luxury to say, I'm not serving turbo because I have my accolades, I have my notoriety, I know I can make a lesser fish shine. Mm-hmm. What about the restaurants that are not as well-known like in their ability to say like well we need we need soul in the menu because yeah but you know soul. I mean to me I like I also feel like you know turbo is what it is because of the the story or sure. you know wagyu beef or Kobe beef is what it is because of the story you know and but the, you know the fact that a, a fish like vermilion rockcot is underappreciated doesn't mean that it doesn't have the same integrity and flavor and you know uh, unique attributes that a turbo does you know what I mean and it's only because I mean like I had I was enamored with that fish for so long because of because of where I came from and what I was taught but I mean but now I've you know I've grown up and I've learned a little bit more and and I and I realize that just because something like a fish like the rock cod or black cod or any of the other species that we get from Dr. Dish, just because they're they're unappreciated and they underappreciated and they don't have that same, you know, sort of cachet that a fish like Turbo or Lunamare has, it doesn't mean that it's not distinctive and delicious. And and I and I also I would argue that like it doesn't matter if it, like it you don't have to be a restaurant like Providence to to be proud of serving a fish like that because at the end of the day it's about like quality integrity freshness and flavor yeah and these fish humble though they may be they deliver on all accounts so like yeah you know what is not to be proud of honestly and and it's and it's money going back into Southern California economy it's it's you know. Um, you know, it's making the lives of American fishermen better. I just did a thing in D.C. Um, where I was invited to to be a part of, the, of this uh, this coalition of chefs that were invited by the Monterey Bay Aquarium to go to the White House and, and do this um, this event 
for it was called the Champions of Change for Sustainable Seafood. Did you get to cook for the president? No, 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 not at all. Never even saw him. But but it was like this, you know, it was a thing. It was fun. It was it was great. But there's a fisherman there from uh, actually he's from Rhode Island. His name is Chris Brown. He has this great uh, com- small company called Brown Family Seafood. Mm. And one of the points that he made, which I thought was, you know incredibly deep and profound was the idea that like buying American fish is a patriotic act hmm. and and I think that's so true like and with you know I mean that's true of anything that you buy in the retail or wholesale setting but but you know to think of it in those terms like the fact that you're supporting American fishermen that you're supporting you know um, small businesses owned and run by Americans or even if they're American immigrants to America whatever it is but it's it's fish that's being caught you know under the auspices of you know our nation and and all of its regulations and all the controls that we put on our fisheries it is it is a far better choice for anyone out there to you know sort of like focus on on buying American fish because you know what what you're getting you know that it's controlled and you know the big phrase in the sustainability world now is IUU so um Illegal, unreported, and unregulated, mm-hmm. and there's a ton of fish that's imported from other countries, and not just fish. There's other seafood, yeah, like the shrimp and oh all yeah, the other stuff like right, that. exactly. When I say fish, I mean that whole that yeah, whole sure. thing. But um, IUU, illegal, unreported, unregulated, and if you're buying American fish, you can assure yourself, for the most part, that that the fish you're bringing home is not has not been caught under any one of those three sort of you know um, circumstances. Now, you know, part of what it seems like it, beyond just actually doing it and bringing the fish is like telling the story. Mm-hmm. So it's like education and marketing mm-hmm. in many ways and things like that. And I know with uh, Cape Seafood and Provisions, you know, there's a lot of, you hear a lot about like artisanal butchers mm-hmm. and like local butchers and that's the thing. But this is uh, a fish monger of the same way that you want like your local, let's say, meat hook and mm-hmm. or something like that. So have you seen now that you've opened it... Um, a shift in the customer and like people coming in and being like, I know now about the fish. I'm going out and spreading the gospel. Like, have you, have you seen people being able to come not just to the restaurant, but to go buy it, cook it at home? Mm-hmm. Um, and the change with, uh, like spreading it that way, you know, it's like you can, yeah, it, it, it's, it's been great. You know, and we sell, we sell the idea over the, at Cape is that, you know, the fish that you've enjoyed here or the fish that you've enjoyed at Connie and Ted's is for sale there in the retail setting. We buy from the same sources, same vendors, it's the same level of quality. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's been great. I, one of my favorite things to do is go over there and just stand behind the counter and talk to people about fish and, you know, where they're, what they're going to do with it and how they're going to cook it and, you know, you, and I mean, make you, recommendations. You, and that you kind are of like the what I want every time I go to a supermarket yeah. and I get like a piece of fish. Cause I'm like, OK, I know with salmon, I can put like mm-hmm. mustard and soy on this. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, this week we had two different kinds of salmon side by side in the case. We had. Troll caught kings from Sitka, Alaska, which are big fish, you know, yeah. uh, fatty, absolutely gorgeous. And then we had smaller cohos that were from the Quinault River that I buy from this company called Quinault Tribal Enterprises, which is a native-owned, native-operated, fi- small fishery up there on the Quinault River in Taloha, Washington. And, you know, I mean, so you could, if you want to spend the big bucks, you get the king salmon from Alaska because the price is way higher. Not that much, but a good bit. And then yeah. if you want to go smaller, you get the coho, and you've got, like, two beautiful har- um, fish harvested both in the United States, um, you know, and just perfectly delicious, you know. Mm. And then we also have that rock cod there. We have, 
you know, last week we had swordfish that came from Dr. Dish, like 130-pound sword that came in the door hole that we had to, that I had to go over there and, like, break down into steaks. You know, it's it's just exciting and it's fun. And, and like, the idea of knowing that all this stuff is harvested within a couple hundred miles of down, of you know, of Los Angeles proper, I think is, you know, it's, I don't know, it's exciting, it's different. And, you know, Jonathan Gold talked about it when he wrote about Providence recently yeah. that the food tastes like Los Angeles. And I think that that is, you know... That might not be the goal that I had, like with all of this, and and you know bringing in much more local fish. But if that's the case, then I'm happy about that. You know what yeah. I mean? Because there, because you know, there's a reason why LA can't have more of a regional sort of like flavor, and and uh, you know, and fish and shellfish was certainly part of that. Yeah, I mean, but what about so? And and not to throw uh, a corkscrew in it, but great for New York, great for the coast. How do you solve that problem once you get? the middle of America mm. like when there are no oceans there is no local you can't just go out to the Pacific right um, and the supply chain is like well if I'm going to get it from 2,000 miles away why not get it from 5,000 miles away how do you start shifting that perception um, and that supply chain yeah I mean that's that's the thing um, anytime you talk about like sustainable food systems scale is always the question right and, uh, it, and it works for beef because you can have local beef in the middle of America because right. you just need a pasture. Mm-hmm. But where, how do you apply that to the same thing where you actually need a body of, of water? Well, I mean, the bottom line is you, you, you're going to have to ship things. Sure. You know what I mean? You're going to have to – I mean, FedEx will get you anything in 24 hours. At least that's their – that's the model that they right. built their, their world on. So – you know, I mean, I suppose that's the answer, but then, you know, people also argue about the sustainability of flying fish from coast to coast and that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, but, um, you know, honestly, I do, I do still believe, though, you know, firmly that, that um, you know, if you're in Dubuque, you're still better off to buy, you know, shrimp that were harvested in the Gulf. 100%. Fresh or frozen than you are, you know, uh, shrimp that were raised in Laos or Cambodia or Vietnam. Right. You know, because you can... You can rest assured of their quality and their purity, and their that they will be what they're supposed to be. Yeah, you know. So, I have to ask: you have number one restaurant in LA, mm-hmm. an amazing empire, changing the way people eat uh, seafood. Think about the seafood. Talk about seafood. Look at sustainability. Where do you go from here? What's next? Like, is it just get bigger or? I don't know. I mean, right now, you know, I'm spending a lot of time focusing on Cape Seafood because sure. we've, you know, we we have just hired Sarah and and taken on the whole Doctor Dish thing. So honestly, what I, you know, I really want to focus on that. I really want to focus on like on building uh, what we've started, um, you know, with uh, with Doctor Dish and and trying to you know really promote more. You know, local seafood and you know certainly wild seafood, and um, I don't know. I I feel like it's you know it's probably it's probably more relevant than what I'm doing like within the four walls of the restaurants. You know, and and because I you know I mean you can accomplish whatever and you know a, a good you can accomplish things within the within the context of the restaurant, but like it you know I don't know. I feel like the with Doctor Dish. And, and with, like, pushing this whole idea of, you know, trying to buy more sustainably and trying to buy traceable fish and all that kind of stuff, I feel like that sets a more of a model, more of an example for, for you know, for the, re- for the industry. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, it's one thing to do a very incredible fine dining mm-hmm. restaurant. That's one set of steaks. But to go out and change the way that people think about supply chain 
and fishing and a very basic knowledge of the way that people get what they eat, that's a whole other level of like being a force of change. Yeah, but I find it I I find it like honestly just as exciting as what I do, you know, what I do here at Providence or at Connie and Ted's because because I feel like it, you know, in some like very very small way, it makes a bit of a difference, and that's you know that's important because like I, our generation and the generation that's below us as chefs, as restaurateurs, as as uh, people in the food business, we are the ones that are going to like make the change, and we're the ones that are going to move the needle one way or the other. And my hope, obviously, would be that we move it in a positive direction, and that we, um, you know, we we ensure or try to ensure that there will be you know wild fish and fishermen, you know, uh, plying the waters of our coasts here in the United States for generations to come, and you know. We have to make that change now. I mean, that's just... It really is kind of the bottom line. You know, there are reports that suggest that, like, if we start to make these changes within 10 years, that many of the threatened currently threatened species will come back to a place where they can be harvested sustainably. And so, I mean, that's an important goal. And, like, I want to be a part of, like, helping to ensure that that is what actually takes place, as opposed to, like, moving the needle in the other direction and with this current administration that's just been voted in I feel like we're at a you know in terms of environmental policy and um, like on a much larger scale than just fisheries but environmental policies with regard to climate change and um, uh, will will also determine like our course and our path for the next generation because you know we don't do more if we don't stick with the Paris Accords and do more with regards to climate change rising um, sea temperatures and ocean acidification will threaten the very existence of everything that lives in the sea and like once you start to mess with the foundation and you do irreparable irreparable damage to the food chain there which which there's starting to be evidence of due to ocean acidification and rising um, sea temperature, then everything is at risk. And so, you know, you can protect species with uh, fisheries management and, um, and regulation all you want. But if you don't do something to ensure that the sea itself remains a healthy place and a viable environment for, like, species big and small, then you're, you're really fucking you can, with everything. You can say you're fucked. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and, you know, I just was reading in the New York Times, I think, like, one of the people that he's putting up for... Uh, Secretary of the Interior is Sarah fucking Palin. Like, I mean, could you imagine the hell that she would rot to this earth if uh, that were the case? I mean, she is. Uh, the guy who wants to work for the EPA is a uh, global uh, climate change denier. Yeah, half the and half the people that he's putting up are all from the from um, the fossil fuel industry. You know, like how are those people ever going to do anything? Like that w- to positively affect what's going on with climate change. It's uh, insane. And like when you sit here as a as a as a you know a chef or someone who values food, if, even even if you're not in the business, but you know, and you think about those are the people that could potentially be making policy that will shape the way our world looks like for the generation to come, for at least the next four years. It's fucking horrifying, especially since we've literally got the world to agree on one thing. Yeah, and it, <laughs> which is the most insane thing. Like we finally right, finally, and it's only a set of goals. Actually, yeah, you know, it, like we're not even there yet. Yeah, it's, it's we've agreed to work towards these things, which are important. So, 
I don't know. It's just, it, it's incredibly scary. And, you know, I try to talk less about like the whole climate change issue and, and ocean acidification and rising sea temperature, because like, if you, if you, I mean, if, if that's your only focus, then you might lose, you can lose sure. sight of like some of the smaller issues that also are important. But the truth is, is like, there's that whole overarching thing that really will affect, you know, the, the, the viability of all of the species that we currently gather from the sea as food much more than overfishing or poor regulation. You know what I mean? So, you know, because, I mean, climate change in OA, ocean acidification, will do way more damage than you could ever really do with a, a fishing vessel. You know right. what I mean? Right. Well, Chef, I appreciate the work that you're doing. I appreciate Thanks. the change that you're making. If people want to find out more about the restaurant or, or just any of the programs they're involved with, where can they go? Uh, God, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I probably. I don't know. Write. A, I'll write a manifesto and I'll get back to you. And I'll let you know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but you could go to our website, I guess. And what's the website? ProvidenceLA.com. All right. Well, Chef, congratulations on everything. Thank you. Thank you for the hard work you're doing. Thanks. We have another song. I don't know. I don't know if we've ever had a reggae band on, but we've definitely had some punk bands. So we'll play some uh, some punky stuff. Here live on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you. Do you think of yourself? 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 Do you think of yourself?
Have you tasted the world's best cheese? Grand Cru Sourchois is the 2016 World Cheese Champion. Our partners at Roth, Wisconsin make this gorgeous alpine-style cheese in the rolling hills of Greene County, Wisconsin. Grand Cru Sourchois is produced by hand in Swiss copper vats and finished by aging on spruce planks. The quality milk and careful craftsmanship bring out the award-winning light floral notes, nutty undertones, a hint of fruitiness, and a mellow finish. Perfect with Riesling and Muscat, Grand Cru Sourchois is a guaranteed hit for any occasion. Check out their other offerings at RothCheese.com. You'll discover Buttermilk Blue and their newest release, Prairie Sunset, the golden-hued love child of Mimolette and Gouda. You'll also find recipes like the Raclette Reuben and Tomato Tartlets. Everything you need to know about the world's best cheese is at RothCheese.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Chris from Pop Etc. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I want to read a quote that you said and read it back to you. I'm quoting myself. I'm quoting yourself. We spent so long writing the new record, not knowing. In the end, what made it come together was distance. Experienced a lot during the making of the record. It's a souvenir of that period of time. Really fitting for what you would say is a four-year process of putting this record together. Let's go back. Where were you four years ago when you started the process of writing hundreds and hundreds of songs for this new endeavor? Uh, I think at that time we were, we'd been a band for a while. I'd been making music for years and kind of got caught up in the cycle of just making an album, touring, going back in, making an album, and not really uh, being patient with kind of uh, my artistic or whatever you want to call it um desires and just kind of was stuck in that grind and i think we just hit a wall with it and realized we needed to chill for a minute and write at our own pace and not set any kind of deadlines that forced us to end or cut short our creative process a lot of the creative process people will say come from constraint time resources etc uh, and you, you said that formerly your writing process was maybe 15, 20 songs at a time. What did cutting off all constraint do? Was it at first uh, scary or did it feel like you were falling just like through space and time? Or how did it make you feel once you were be like, when it's done, it's done and having no idea when you said that? Yeah, I mean, at first it was just liberating because like I said, we were kind of in that grind and then just to let go of that and say, okay, we're not going to schedule any tours. We're not going to schedule any release dates or anything that would make us finish it um it was just we felt free you know we could just do whatever we wanted try lots of different things we weren't thinking about an album per se we were just writing and making music that we loved um and as time went on i think it became harder the fear of never knowing when it was going to be finished started (laughs) creeping its way into the process was that like year three or month two i mean it's it's hard to say i I think it was probably it's roller coaster it's kind of like in the second week it probably came up a little bit but then (laughs) you forget about it and move on um but i remember it just kind of increasingly uh making its way into our our mind as uh we got into that whatever second or third year of just writing and writing and writing and you changed the band name, uh, but did you also change the process of writing songs through this? Um, we did 
but it wasn't it didn't coincide with the band name change exactly i mean even as the morning vendors we did two albums and the process Mm -hmm. for those two albums was quite different the first one i was kind of just uh a lot of the songs i'd already written by myself and recorded on my own and um and even have a band at the beginning of that album whereas for big echo the second album we had a band and that was more of a band process and so it's it's kind of changed all the time and as a songwriter i've always just wanted to keep trying different things so that was kind of the plan forever just to change the process as it seemed fit and do you feel that you're still a band if you don't have a record out if you're not going on tour did there, did there feel a time where pop Excited was more just a concept or kind of an intangible less like something that was a physical thing that you could take out onto the road or, or share with people uh i mean it's it's definitely a band in that when we changed the name, part of the reason we did that is we uh, one of our members left, and the three of us that were left was me, our drummer Julian, and my brother John. And the three of us have been playing for a long time now, and the Morning Benders went through many incarnations, lots of different band members, and these the three of us have now been the longest that I've ever made music with. Um, and as a result, the band, Pop Etc. as a band, is the three of us, and everything we do goes through all three of us. We all sign off on everything. And it's a very, uh, you know, our decision-making process is very collective. So in that way, it is a band. Um, and how did you feel about going from solo writing, being able to kind of control that, to having a group decision and group input? And how did that change the music? Obviously, different influence, different musical influences... But where do you think that took the songs in both a good way and a bad way? Uh, I mean, I think collaboration really only makes things better. <laughs> so I, there aren't a lot of negatives there. The, the, the hard part was letting go of that control, for sure. I mean, starting off when I made our first album, I wanted to do everything myself. And I got a job at a studio so I could engineer it because I didn't want an engineer <laughs> messing with it. And I started learning how to mix and just all that stuff, you know. Um, and slowly I realized that if you can find people that you trust and bring into your, your circle of trust or whatever, then being able to collaborate with people that you rely on is really the, or that you, um, not only can trust, but are inspired by their ideas as well. That's kind of, that's the best, I think. And then within the collaborate collaboration process of the new batch of songs, when did you feel that the new sound or the new record began to take shape? I mean, I'm not, you can't say like songs one through 40 were, were throwaways, but yeah. where did that begin to enter into the, the sound and f- begin to formalize where you thought this might begin be the beginning of what comes next? Uh, I mean, there's a couple of things. The, one of the, the aspects that brought it together was really just writing a ton of songs and then listening through them, kind of revisiting them every few months. I mean, like, okay, there's like a certain strand that's running its way through this song and this song and this song. And they weren't even necessarily written close to each other, you know? The Souvenir has songs that were written like three years ago and some that were written a year ago, right before the album was released. Um, So that, it was kind of gradually being figured out through all those all the songs we were, we were writing. Um, the other thing that really kind of made the album more cohesive is I do a lot of the writing and demoing on my own. And when we start kind of earmarking songs to say like, okay, this might make sense for the album, then all three of us get more involved and we start fleshing them out and going to the studio and recording everything. And 
at that point you start hearing all three of our personalities imbued in the song and that kind of started making the album come together does that make sense it does we hear a song <laughs> yeah let's do it uh let's what are you gonna one play of those first songs. yeah um i'm gonna do a song called vice from our album souvenir Trying to help you. Say you got answers, you're gonna help me soon. And I know there's darkness in your heart. We're both content to play our parts. Vice that I like, no matter how hard I fight, it's a hold of me. And every time that I say it's the last, before I know it, I'm back. It takes a hold of me right now. me cross those lines and I know there's darkness in my heart too we're both consent to play our parts cause you got that vice that I like no matter how hard I fight it takes a hold of me The video for Vice is pretty food centric. <laughs> yeah, it is. The best thing about it uh, is the yolk cutting. How hard is it to cut a yolk? Uh, it's hard to keep it on the thing, on the cutting board. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many takes is it to get the yolk in the way that you wanted it? How many takes? You yeah. Mean, while I was making the dish? Yeah. I mean, when you're cutting it for the movie or for the 
video. That's di- we're just trying to we kind of cheated it. You know, we're trying <laughs> yeah. to just get the right angle when I'm doing it for you know fried rice or something. I usually get on the first try. What is the inspiration behind? I mean, the song you know lightly lines up with it, but what was the inspiration for the food theme and, and the cooking and the disappearing meals? Uh, we we were thinking a lot for what the video for Vice could be and. The song's about, you know, addiction or having vices mm-hmm. in your life. And um, there's a lot of those things that kind of come to mind that a lot of people have problems with, like drugs or alcohol or whatever. And we just thought it would be not only cliche, but not really capturing um, exactly what we wanted to capture in that song if we were to do something like that, because... What I was thinking about with Vice and with a lot of the songs on Souvenir is that you can really have an unhealthy relationship to any kind of uh, pattern of behavior. And so that goes for things that you think of as wholesome, like food, eating, or exercise or something. There's lots of things that you can get addicted to that on the surface are healthy, good things or necessary things like food mm-hmm. um, and take them to a, a unhealthy extreme. So we kind of wanted to show that. You talk about being addicted to writing music. Is that unhealthy? It can be, yeah. I mean, in what way? uh, In that I have a sense of happiness and fulfillment that kind of hinges on being writing songs and being productive with music. Um, And I hold myself to a pretty high standard. So often, like, if I don't write a song for a day, I'll feel like I wasted the day. Which isn't necessarily true. <laughs> uh, Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo said the same thing. He draws a lot, and he said if he doesn't yeah. draw every day, he feels like there's like a gaping hole, yeah, or, or something emerging out from that that can only be filled by doing the act. Yeah, totally. So how do you balance that for with life on the road or all the other things that come in and fill the void of being a band, along with you know being productive, being creative? Yeah, well, I mean, being on the road is the hardest part because I try to be productive with writing and doing that, and I definitely start ideas but it's hard to kind of work on them you know that and the the workflow is always interrupted by various things um but besides that it's just kind of finding enough people to work with and enough different projects to work on that you're not always just uh, a slave to your band schedule you know so lately i've kind of been producing and writing for other artists and that allows me to not only find homes for all these songs that I write <laughs> every day, um, but also just to, to get fresh inspiration and see how other people make music and all that stuff is really, it keeps it fun and fresh. From the collaboration process and the producing process, what are some of the things that you've learned from other people that you've incorporated into yourself or began to look at differently through your, for your own creative process? Oh, I mean, everyone I work with is so different. So, And now I'm... You know, I've I've taken all the parts that I liked from different <laughs> people's thoughts, so I'm a Frankenstein of everything I've worked on. Um, but I don't know. I mean, seeing how certain like engineers work in the studio that are very mathematically minded and how they're honing in on certain sounds and making sure that this buzz isn't there, or the way an acoustic guitar sounds isn't, uh, or the way that an instrument actually sounds in the space is captured to the tape or hard drive or whatever however you're recording um there's a lot of kind of technical aspects of making music that i didn't initially uh connect with because i i always was just a songwriter and i like to just 
play and, and sing. Um, so I've learned a lot about that side of the process through various, you know, engineers, producers, and mixers we've worked with. Um, and I've started to see how you can bring a really creative, artistic approach to things that seem very mechanical and mathematical, you know? Do you find yourself doing something and be like, oh yeah, that's how John (laughs) does it, or that's how like Matt does it, or does it just fold in and become part of yourself? I think I've noticed that when I'm first, like fresh off working with someone, and I'll find myself doing something and be like, oh, that's similar to... (laughs) But after a while, I mean, it just... Who knows? I don't know where any of this stuff comes from. You're influenced by so many things, everything you come into contact with, you know? Can we hear another song? Yeah. Are you ready? I'm very ready. <laughs> What's this one called? Um, I'm going to do, uh, do a song called What Am I Becoming? watching me I couldn't smell the smoke and now I watch the flames I couldn't push myself to quit oh this dangerous game there's a reason people die out here I can't keep living this way I can't keep living this way oh, I've been running so long these shadows start to feel like home. Oh, I know it's backwards. Been scared so long. Can't recall what I started running from. What am I becoming? What am I becoming? Tell me that's enough And I got a hunch I'll be back again Cause even if I could escape I'm paying with something I shouldn't spend I couldn't smell the smoke And now I watch the flames I lock myself out here again Oh, this fruitless game All these people are gonna die out here I can't keep living this way I can't keep living this way Oh, I've been running so long These shadows start to feel like home Oh, I know it's backwards This gets so long Can't recall What I started running from What am I becoming What am I becoming What am I becoming What am I becoming becoming? For the new record you built your headphone cave. 
Can you explain what that is? Uh, we needed a name for our studio and in our apartment. And no one can see air quotes. Yeah, that's on a, the radio, yeah. but studios are kind of a studio. I mean, <laughs> studios—they're uh, changing all the time. Yeah, that's loosely that's defined. Loose term. Um, but uh, yeah, we have a we had a studio in, in two different apartments that I've lived in now. Um, for souvenir, it was the same one for the whole time, but I moved recently, um, and we often got noise complaints. So we were all three of us with our headphones sitting around the computer. That's why we called it Headphone Cave. And what was the setup there? I mean, like you said, studios are so different now. I mean, a laptop is a studio, so what did you do to maybe take it a little bit out of the air quote realm? Yeah, I mean, I started recording on my laptop on the road, and that's kind of what got me into that again, because I'd worked at a studio before, but that was always kind of um, with all their gear, and we recorded our first couple albums to tape, so I was kind of, I learned engineering and that sort of thing from from a more analog perspective um so when i started recording on my laptop uh it was just a a matter of getting back to uh some of the some of the gear that introduces uh i don't know a more natural or chaotic element to recording um so that meant like getting a more instruments that we could record and play i got a piano for our apartment that we recorded on and some old mics and a couple pre's and a compressor a bunch of synths so was this one done on all laptop or did you move back to tape for this one as well we did it all on computer it wasn't a laptop but yeah yeah, all computers (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean there's a certain freedom to that that we really like now um you know a tape it just I love the sound of tape. I love the kind of natural compression that you get from hitting tape. I don't like the process of recording to tape. It's horrible. It's so slow. Anytime you want to edit something, it's this whole to-do. I like being able to move quickly and, if you have an idea, not be slowed down or paralyzed by the way you're recording. I mean, it goes back to the overarching theme for this of no constraint. Nothing self-imposed, just pure creative process. So to go back to to where we started and following the strands, how did you begin to narrow down what became Souvenir? What were some of the more themes that that jumped out along the way? And and what was it that took you from the four-year process to say, here we go, uh, now I feel that I'm ready to become a more tangible form of myself? Hmm. Um, I don't know if I've made that that decision yet. uh, None of us do, but whatever. (laughs) As far as Souvenir goes... um, I I spoke a little to this before, but part of it was finding the set of songs that the three of us all loved. Hmm. So there are a lot of songs that I sent to them and I was like, guys, this is, this is the one I love this. This is great. And they would write back in, eh, not really feeling it. (laughs) Did you get the email? I sent it in an email. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Why aren't you guys responding to me? Um, that happened a lot. And, uh, a big part of what made souvenir souvenir and what kind of, I feel like drives our band at this one is the way that we all curate what we put out. So um, that was a huge part of it. And then thematically, there were definitely um, a few different strands of kind of, I don't even, it's weird calling them themes, but kind of emotional content that was consistent um, through lots of different songs. You know, there was a few different albums we probably could have funneled songs into. Um, but there was something about the songs on Souvenir that um, all felt 
very close to us um, in terms of what we were going through at that time. And um, I think a process of, like, in the way we were making music for a while, as I talked about earlier, and we were thinking about this process as a, a different um, phase for us, we'd also just lived life longer, and we were thinking about our time together and what we'd gone through the five or six years prior as a band. And will this process continue for the next record? Will it be another three, four years off of, of Unconstrained? Or do you feel that you've now... Do, do you feel that you've now gotten to a new place where the writing process has evolved to the point where it is, at least in this time, something that you could stick to or adhere to and it doesn't need to go out into the wild as much for the next record? I have learned from my mistakes and that I uh, won't promise that it's going to come out <laughs> any time. I don't know if it'll come out sooner or later or whatever. Um, sorry, my guess, sorry, record label. If my, you're listening. <laughs> my best guess is that we do feel there's some momentum to the process that we started and we've written a lot since, uh, souvenir came out and we had a lot of songs that we have written in the last couple of years that we've come back to and kind of reinvigorated, um, so, we feel productive. <laughs> <laughs> Non-committal, but the yeah, that, that's the most commitment <laughs> yeah. that you can make. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure we have time for one more song. Yeah. Uh, where can people find the record? How can people follow you? Do you social media? Yeah, we're all over all this, <laughs> the stuff. <laughs> find us. Um, we like talking to people on social media. That's kind of the best part of it. Um, oh, you have a good dialogue with the people? We do, yeah. And it's funny that a lot of artists are entities on social media do not yeah so, i feel um, it's like the easiest way i mean i'll put it another way if someone takes the time to it doesn't just to like you but to write you a letter how great is that that someone took the time to do that it's amazing yeah, yeah. and i i always encourage like people will write us stuff about how they use this song and like their wedding or or some event or whatever and i'll be like take a video show like i want to see more of that stuff because that's the side of things that kind of that really motivates us to keep working, seeing that our music's connecting with people. And we don't get to see any of that, really, if it wasn't for social media. And I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I think like having a dialogue is, is the best part, yeah. especially if you're in a van for 12 hours. Yeah, <laughs> it really helps. <laughs> we want to thank Providence for being on the show earlier. And if you have a moment, please vote for Snacky Tunes for Taste Awards, uh, Best Radio Show and Best Podcast. Voting closes on December 20th. It's bit.do backslash stvote. This is the last show of the year. You are the last guest of the year. I'm so honored. Thank you for doing this. We will Thanks be for having me. Thank you for being on here. This is a Fun. wonderful way. Pro <laughs> uh, process is such a good thing to think about going into the holidays, especially when you have all that downtime. Yeah. And New Year's. You got your resolutions coming up. Yeah. Do you have any planned? Can you pre-plan resolutions? I'm going to try to make less, start writing less. Stop holding myself to you just, unhealthy standards of... You just undid the whole interview. That was unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you guys don't know how insane I am. Oh, okay. With that. Fair enough. I want to just lead a more balanced, healthy life. <laughs> balance is good. Let's go... Yeah. I'll, how about this? We'll go for balance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. That sounds yeah. like a good one. Yeah. That sounds doable better than any extreme. Yeah. Uh, what's the name of the last song you're going to take us out? I'm going to go, uh, as we talk about the future, I'm going to go back in time. Oh, perfect. To an oldie um, for us. And only where I come from, uh, called Excuses. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks to all the people who uh, supported us this year and sent us nice notes. And as Chris encourages, please write us. We'll write you back. we yeah. got some time on our hands with the holidays upon us. And we will be back next year 
with a whole nother season of Snacky Tunes. Shout out to Darren and the whole family. And uh, Chris, will you do us the honor of taking us out one last time? Okay, here we go. Thanks so much. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.